Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Always On EM podcast. It's a production of the Mayo Clinic Emergency Department. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I'm one of the hosts. I'm always excited to sit across the table from my friend, Dr. Alex Finch. How are you today? I'm doing great. Ready for another fantastic episode. We hope you all are hungry, and uh, I mean that a little bit as a pun for for some <laughs> some new information. How have you been doing, Venk? I'm doing quite well, uh, and I... Don't know if you picked up on it, but Alex is referring to the fact that we're going to talk about arthropod-related illnesses, particularly tick-related illnesses, because that's an area that we're particularly interested in here in Minnesota, especially this time of year. This being timely, they're taking a bite out of us clinically and when we're outside. So um, I love that button. That was great. I, I, uh, I totally agree. I don't know about you, Vank. I've been working some telemed shifts lately and I've seen a real uptick in those those tests coming back positive for some of these diseases we're going to talk about today. And so this is something that I feel like as ED docs, we are the front line for this and always a good opportunity to review. I agree. I, I don't work telemed, so I don't see the positive results, but I send off tests. And I've had these discussions clinically with our trainees a lot recently. And so I think it's a great topic to review here. Um, I personally have not found a tick on myself this year. Have you seen any on yourself? So far, knock on wood, I've been able to avoid it, but but we're not out of the woods yet. <laughs> there it is. You've got so I, many. Of I'm these a dad can... now, so I can tell dad jokes. It's allowed. <laughs> well, they're definitely welcome here. <laughs> I did find one on uh, my oldest son um, the other day and pulled it off, and then I found a different bug of some kind on my dog, which... Uh, was quite alarming as I was just relaxing and reached down to pet her and then Mm -hmm. my hand pulled up this bug. But anyway, I don't like insects. Me neither. Me neither. Well, I mentioned arthropods. For those who don't know, ticks are one type of arthropod. Others include mosquitoes, bed bugs, mites, chiggers, lice, and there's so many more. I think it's one of the most voluminous classes of animals in in, in the world. And as I've been thinking about this, I always talk to trainees about how the decision to consider an illness usually involves both exposure, but also human factors. And I think this is also shown with arthropods. There's some suggestion, I don't know if you knew this, Alex, that the rate at which people get affected or bitten by arthropods like mosquitoes is affected by their blood type metabolic rate, amount of CO2, temperature, all kinds of things can affect that. So it's not uniform. I've read a little bit that there's preferences in different people. And I know for sure that the mosquitoes pick me and not my wife when we're sitting together outdoors. That's the same thing in our relationship. In (laughs) fact, um, Erica often thinks I'm crazy. I'm constantly picking at things off Mm -hmm. my skin or slapping at some itch. And she doesn't have anything. She can walk through the forest and... (laughs) is completely unaffected, talking about how serene it is, and I'm frustrated. I totally agree. There's a, a great scene uh, in a Bill Murray movie, and he runs through, and he, he says, leech check, leech check, and, and he's like, am I the only one who got hit? That's how it feels to me. Absolutely. I also, you know, I think one thing I didn't know early on was that mosquitoes, you know, they they 
kind of drink your blood through a straw. They insert their... Is it proboscis? Is that what it is? Uh, let's go with that. They okay. insert it right into the small vessels and capillaries and take blood out. And that process is called selenophagia. But ticks, which is something I didn't know, I assumed that they did the same thing early in my career. But as I've lived here longer, I've learned to know that they caused a microtrauma to the vessels causing a small hematoma. And then they consume that. And that process is called telmophagy. Just interesting medical trivia, I think. But I think the most interesting thing our listeners probably want to know about are the specific diseases that they might contract or their patients might contract from tick-related illness. And um, of course, the one that everybody cares about the most is ehrlichiosis, right? Absolutely. And anaplasmosis. (laughs) Of course. Top of mind. Obviously, we're kidding. Lyme disease is the one that everyone talks about, at least in the U.S., and I'm assuming a majority of the world. But um, what would you tell people about Lyme disease? It's the most common tick-borne illness in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. It's a spirochete infection. The family is Borrelia, which is critical for your charting. And you have to be able to identify the tick. It's an Ixodes tick. I'm just kidding. Vank, how are we at breaking down types of ticks? I know that people have sometimes brought ticks into me. Sometimes they've tried to describe them. Well, obviously, you and I are world experts. And 100%. We, we are 100% accurate. In fact, when labs tell us we're wrong, we know that they're, in fact, it's the ones who are they wrong. they who are wrong. Exactly. But if you're like most people, we are, in fact, terrible. In 1998, Falco et al. published a letter to the editor, and Falco's team, really, they ran a specialty lab where people would send them uh, insects and look for identification. And they found the accuracy of tick identification in Lyme disease endemic areas, and this is old data from 1988 to 1990, they collected 3,766 specimens that were sent to them, and the accuracy was really poor. In fact, it began with... 241 of the specimens were not even ticks. Uh, 88 were beetles, 28 were mites, 29 were lice, and 19 were spiders. Now, I'm sure I would make the same mistake because these are very talented, thoughtful individuals who sent those specimens. But just at face value, it's hard for me to imagine confusing a spider and a tick, but it might happen. Now, those were specimens sent by all different types of professionals and potentially even the general community. But when you took the subset sent by physicians, the most common non-tick specimens were, again, beetles, crab lice, and head lice. So I think it just goes to show that we're wanting to identify the tick, but we're probably really, really bad at it. So this really speaks to the the first aspect of Lyme's disease. And what we're going to do is go through a couple of clinical scenarios that I think are fairly common clinical scenarios when we're assessing tick-borne illnesses, uh, rather than just thinking about the disease by itself. Because to me, it's really a series of clinical questions. And the first clinical question is a, a patient who comes in and says that they've been bitten by a tick. They usually don't have it with them. And the question is, what are we going to do with this patient? Do they need some sort of prophylaxis against a disease? And so I want to start out by just saying a plug for the CDC clinician website, which I think is really phenomenal. They have a, a series of decision aids and even short videos that you can go through on shift and work through these issues. And a lot of them are really nice. You can print them out and go into the patient room and explain your decision making, which is 
just as important. Thinking through our, our patients, we have this first patient who shows up, let's just say, 60-year-old male presents after uh, he was bitten by a tick, removed it in some way, and the question is, should he get some sort of prophylaxis? The way we're going to start to work through this is to try and assign a pretest probability that this gentleman could have been bitten by a tick that may be infected with Borrelia. The CDC recommends a series of questions. Number one, where are we in the world or in the United States and is it likely that Borrelia is endemic to the area? Honestly, you probably know where you're working what that likelihood is, but the CDC does have some maps. We're here in Minnesota, and there is a high incidence of Lyme disease in Minnesota. So this is something automatically when, when we consider that tick bite, we're thinking there's a fairly high likelihood. Was the tick removed within 72 hours? A third question kind of gets at the same sort of issue. Was the tick's body flat or was it engorged? And what are these speaking to? Transmission is less likely in the first 72 hours, and even better if it is less than 48 hours. Prophylaxis is very effective in those 72 hours. The engorgement speaks to the fact that when you find a little tick on you, how do you really estimate if, you, if you've been out in the woods for a few days, how long has it been on? If it's engorged, that starts to increase your thought that there could have been some transmission. I actually had to go back and look through the life cycle of the tick and of the uh, spirochete to better understand this because I'd forgotten all of this from my step one studying, but really the spirochete lives in the gut of the tick. When it first bites you, there's some saliva exchange, but it's unlikely in that very early period that uh, the Borrelia is in the saliva and therefore will be transmitted to you. As the tick starts to engorge, replication of the spirochete in the gut, and then it works its way the saliva and then is transmitted to you. And so this is why there is increased spirochete production, increased likelihood with time. So those are the kind of first three questions and you're estimating what the risk is there. And then number four, what we just talked about, was it an exodes? Was it a, was it a black-legged tick? And number five, is prophylaxis, is doxycycline prophylaxis safe for the patient? So that those would be the series of questions that I would work through on a, a clinical shift. And so overall, for somebody who comes in with a tick bite, I'm looking at them, they may be completely asymptomatic, and if the tick was removed in the last 72 hours and I'm concerned that the, the tick was even a little bit engorged, I'm really not gonna generally be able to identify the tick. I'm often going to assume it's an Ixodes tick. And then it really comes down to the question of, doxycycline. Hey, it's Alex jumping in after the interview with a couple of more details. So when we're talking about the prophylactic dose of doxycycline, the CDC would recommend a 200 milligram one-time dose for adults or 4.4 milligrams per kilogram for children of any age weighing less than 45 kilograms. There have been a few studies that have looked at the rationale for post-exposure prophylaxis. The most widely cited is a New England Journal of Medicine study from 2001 by Needleman and colleagues that was a double-blinded placebo-controlled trial with a single 200 milligram dose of doxycycline in 482 subjects who had had a Ixodes tick 
removed from their bodies within the last 72 hours. The study took place in an area of New York where Lyme disease was hyperendemic. The patients were examined over time for up to six weeks and examined for evidence of erythema migrans and also uh, blood tests were done to look for evidence of Borrelia burgdorferi. And as a, a really interesting note in the study, as we've described, there's a lot of difficulty in identifying the ticks. And in this study, they had entomologists confirm the species of tick to make sure that it was done correctly. In the doxycycline group, one of 235 subjects developed erythema migrans, 0.4% versus 8 of 247 subjects, 3.2% in the placebo group with a p-value of less than 0.04. And so they suggested in this trial that a single 200 milligram dose of doxycycline given within 72 hours of an exodes tick bite can prevent the development of Lyme disease. Of note, the study did have a wide confidence interval, which was uh, an area of criticism for the study. Another area that is somewhat controversial is what if the patient can't take doxycycline? The CDC website has a really nice decision aid that you can use with your patient that ends with the question, can they take doxy? But it doesn't really answer the question, what if they can't? So doxy is the best studied, and in looking at other sources, there really isn't a good other antibiotic that has been studied as prophylaxis. IDSA guidelines, for example, state that the preferred antibiotic regimen for the chemoprophylaxis of Lyme's disease following a high-risk tick bite is doxycycline within 72 hours of tick removal over observation. However, the guidelines don't explicitly say what to do when doxycycline isn't an option. Given that there isn't a clear alternative antibiotic regimen, suddenly you're a little bit in the weeds. You're weighing whether to give full treatment doses, which have been studied more for erythema migrans, and that's a longer treatment regimen and presents with all of the uh, complications of long-term antibiotic use. And you're also weighing observation, and so it's going to be a risk-benefit discussion with your patient. Back to the interview. Think is there anything you would do differently in that situation? No, I completely agree. I basically imagine that every tick in the area is carrying this disease, and it's really a discussion about how long it was there and what are the likelihoods, like you said, that the tick basically vomited the bacteria back into the blood. Uh, that's how I remember it, that it has to vomit it out as opposed to a kissing type thing where it's in the saliva. But um, that just helps me to be more graphic. In my discharge instructions, I do go into things you can do to prevent a tick bite. And I actually found, found these really interesting looking through the, the CDC guidelines again. And these were obviously, you know, you can avoid areas with ticks. But to me, like, I'm not going to tell somebody never to go on a hike. But some interesting things, you can take your clothes and throw them in the dryer on high heat. In my mind, I was saying, well, I would send them through the wash cycle. But it was really interesting to read more about that, that actually it's about putting them in the dryer on high heat. That's really going to kill the tick. If you wash them, you have to dry them on high heat for much longer because the tick can survive. The other thing is there have been studies done that getting done with your hike and hopping right in the shower can be effective. And it's really not 
washing off ticks that have attached. It's the fact that the tick is maybe on you at that point and hasn't attached. And so that, that was another protective thing. And this is in addition to things like permethrin-based clothing and things like that. One question that does come up is how to remove a tick, so Lyme disease or some other, other tick. Uh, Venk, do you have any tips of the trade? I politely excuse myself and go review <laughs> what I want to do because <laughs> I, I feel like it either comes off yep. or I leave the head. Yeah. <laughs> the CDC would recommend that you use tweezers and primarily grip just above the skin. So grabbing that head and put it, putting on general continuous traction not twisting because that might increase the chance that the head breaks off and ideally the whole thing comes off. You don't want to squeeze that belly thinking through again that a lot of the spirochete lives in the in the gut and so you don't want to cause more regurgitation there. One thing that you know does happen is that the head breaks off and it's still in the skin. You can certainly try to get those out gently with a tweezer but you don't need to be digging around a ton because you can get skin and soft tissue infections with that and so do your best but ultimately if if just those little you know pincers of the head are left in you can leave those in and watch them to fall out anything else you would think Frank? i have heard so many things from burning it to there's a special device on amazon now that i saw dedicated for tick removal. I've not had a chance to try it, but we did get some at the house. So I'm excited to give that a chance. But um, I feel as though it's one of those things that should be so easy, but can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge. I totally agree. And so if you're one of those listeners who, like me, is, is struggling with that, and it makes you a little nervous when the patient's like, well, can you take this off? Um, You're not alone. It's pretty normal. And I don't know of any consensus on a single best practice way. And that's partly why everyone has their own method, I think. So we've talked about our patient who was asymptomatic but had a tick bite. But let's say they didn't know they had a bite or now they're showing up and they've got a symptom. What are those symptoms going to be? So really the first one is early localized disease. And we're talking about erythema migrans. Erythema migrans... The classic bullseye rash is one of the most consistent signs, early signs of Lyme disease occurring in about 70 to 80% of infected people. It typically begins at or near the original tick bite after a delay of 3 to 30 days, averaging about a week out. It typically expands and may feel warm, but is rarely pruitic or very painful. There may be subsequent other bullseye rashes that develop, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there were multiple tick bites, but can be evidence of the uh, bacteria spreading. In these patients, there's a couple of questions. Do you need serological testing? And what is the treatment? So overall, with serological testing, you can test, but ultimately, at this point, you're going to treat based on the clinical story. And the first line, again, the thing I love about ticks is we're really talking about doxycycline. So that simplifies things a little bit. And it's a little bit of a longer course, 10 days of doxycycline. In terms of serological testing, we're really talking about that more in early and late disseminated disease. And so I think that's really important because as ED docs, we're often trying to figure out when we when we test, but a lot of the tests that we're doing for Lyme's disease is often looking at uh, IgM and IgG, 
which may not be present at that earliest symptomatic stage. However, those tests are very sensitive at the, at the genesis of early disseminated disease, which is you're usually going to be after 30 days where we will see those. Any thoughts on your practice, Bank? No, I think um, I tend to be, believe that I should go ahead and get the tests, even if they're low yield right up front. I do too. Um, I, often, I often get it because to be honest, I'm, I'm often faced with a situation of some uncertainty. And, uh, and so I wouldn't say it's the wrong thing, but I think that I think that it would be wrong to say the test is negative and therefore I'm not going to treat the patient because yes. actually the test is not very sensitive at the, at the time where you might see erythema migraines early on. Exactly. And uh, just like you said, I'm initiating treatment. I even tell the patients that this test may be negative and you may need subsequent testing or follow-up. That way, when they get their test results on their smartphone or whatever device, they're not automatically thinking they can stop treatment or anything. And it also, it helps to just have those scripts ready in your mind, at least for me, when we're so busy and we want to make sure we get them all the relevant information in a timely fashion. So I, I try and get as much data on the type of tick, the exposure, etc. but I'm also doing that careful exam, looking for the rash. But if the overall syndrome is suspicious enough, I'm initiating treatment and then getting the blood tests for, so that they and their family doc can continue to work through this. So the earliest form of disseminated disease, early disseminated disease can include neurogenic or even cardiac effects. So we're talking about a carditis, which will typically manifest as something like heart block, there can be neurological abnormalities, which can be a, a facial palsy or uh, even a meningitis or encephalitis. Uh, it can also manifest as a, something like a large joint arthritis, which sometimes we see in our pediatric patients. And so in these patients, we do want to proceed then with testing. So we've talked about early disseminated disease. And I will say, uh, I will be the first to raise my hand and say, I have missed this. I don't know if you've ever had a miss like this, but I had a patient who uh, presented and I set off a code stroke because they were an older adult with some facial droop. I said, this is a stroke until proven otherwise. And I did a whole workup and ultimately it ended up not being a stroke. And it was in subsequent testing that it was identified that was actually Lyme's disease. And so have to stay vigilant. Have you ever had any of these cases, Vink? Well, mine was slightly different. And I, I think if the patient had been older, I might have considered activating a stroke uh, system for them as well. But I remember vividly as a intern working with Dr. Jim Hami in the PZD, and I saw a, a younger child, just around 10, if my memory is, is accurate, and they had a bilateral uh, bilateral Bell's palsy syndrome. And I'd never seen that before, but I remember staffing the patient with Jim and he was so calm about it. I was thinking something terrible is happening and I was expecting we needed to get CSF testing and do a bunch of other testing. But as is often the case when you work with Dr. Hami, you need very little testing because he just knows what it is. And in this case, he explained how pathognomonic that was for Lyme. And it guided the entire therapy. It was a really um, strong sticking point in my learning. Late stage disease 
is typically more of an arthritis or further neurological complications. All I'll say is that the testing and treatment would be uh, similar at that point, and you you should have positive antibody testing at that point, obviously, because it's later. Uh, A small offshoot of this is STARI, Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness. The thing that is similar is that the rash looks really, really similar. It's typically actually caused by a different tick, which again, it's unlikely we'll know because we're bad at identifying ticks, but this is typically the lone star tick. The key thing to know is that it's going to present with this pathomonic rash, fever, headaches, joint pain, myalgias. So in a lot of ways, very similar to other tick-borne illnesses, very similar to Lyme's disease, and the rash is going to be difficult to distinguish. The main thing is we actually have no idea what causes it. At one point, we, they thought it was a spirochete, but haven't been able to prove it. Really, what's going to happen is it's going to get treated the same as Lyme's disease, and it, it, it may be something different. Just to be aware, there's this other diagnosis out there caused by a different tick, Starry, to keep on your differential. Hey, everyone. Jumping in after the interview. Something I've always been fascinated with is the intersection of infectious disease and history, and Lyme's disease is no exception. In fact, the earliest known human infection was recently discovered in a 5,000-year-old mummy during genomic analysis. Despite our long history with the disease, our understanding of what is actually going on has been much more recent. In 1975, a mother from Old Lyme, Connecticut, reported that 12 children from a community of less than 5,000 people, four of whom lived on the same street, had received the rare diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Another mother in a nearby town filed a similar report shortly thereafter. This sparked the interest of physicians at Yale University and the Epidemic Intelligence Service of the CDC, who recognized the case count was grossly out of proportion with the general incidence of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. This represented a cluster and therefore an epidemiological puzzle. Dr. Stephen Maloista, Dr. Alan Steer, and Dr. Davis Snydman, among others, helped lead the detective effort. In reviewing the cases of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, they looked for commonalities among the cases. At one point, they thought it could be the water supply, but then they noted that the households had their own wells. They thought it could be something transmitted at school, but one of the towns in the cluster didn't share the same school system. What they did find was that affected patients typically didn't live in the town center, but in the periphery of town. And just as there was a clustering in space, there was also a cluster in time. There was a clear seasonality to the infections. Bit by bit, they deduced that there was a relationship to deer, and then to ticks. Their team later partnered with Dr. Willie Bergdorfer, at the NIH in Montana, who at the time was researching Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. In 1982, while examining several ticks sent to his lab from Shelter Island in New York, he expected to see rickettsia on the gymsa stain, as he had seen many times with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. However, his seminal paper described seeing rather long, irregularly coiled spirochetes. The spirochetes that Dr. Bergdorfer identified in 1982, later bore his name in honor, Borrelia burgdorferi. If you are more interested in this story, check out Bullseye, Unraveling the Medical Mystery of Lyme's Disease by Dr. Jonathan Eldo, or the medical classics paper entitled Willie Bergdorfer, Lyme Disease by Sternbach and colleagues in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Back to the interview. Well, that certainly 
tickles my interest. It's not as good as your dad jokes, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> you know, I think Lyme disease is one that we talk a lot about, but the other one that I know clinically comes up a lot seems to be Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Thankfully, it's not confirmed that often, but I think we keep it on our differentials pretty commonly. Is that the same for you? Yeah, you know, as many of you know, I'm from North Carolina, and this was a really big deal for us. Well, Rocky Mountain spotted fever uh, is caused by Rickettsia rickettsii, which was my favorite answer on tests because it would always tempt me to pick it. It's a fun thing to say. It's a gram-negative obligate intracellular bacteria, and it causes disease mainly by living and reproducing in endothelial cells, which causes direct vascular injury and increased permeability. So in addition to some microvascular hemorrhage that comes with that, there can also be activation of clotting factors. And then the disease state, in in addition, causes some fluid shifts and um, third spacing of fluid, which causes a hypovolemia and sometimes antidiuretic hormone release, which can create hyponatremia. In addition, the immune response by the host can cause inflammatory syndromes such as myocarditis and pneumonitis. And so this is a, a serious illness in, in many patients and carries a pretty significant mortality. And folks in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Central and South American regions are some of the most commonly affected by this, basically as the Rocky Mountain Range extends throughout this hemisphere. There are other similar diseases that are categorized as spotted fever rickettsiosis, even if they're not specific to the rickettsia rickettsii species. There are other rickettsial diseases that cause them. One thing that I think is interesting about this condition is that there can be clustering within families or residences. And I don't often think of that with other tick-related infections like Lyme disease, but this one, particularly in indigenous populations or other folks who share residence, there can be clustering seen. So if you, you have several patients in the same residence coming to you, it wouldn't exclude the diagnosis of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And you have to be thinking about it, particularly in the spring and early summer, but there are case reports even through the winter in certain endemic areas. The incidence is higher in children, but really anyone who's exposed to being outside, hiking in woods or tall grass, or have dogs, etc., that might expose them to the tick vector is at risk. So really this is a huge number of people who are at risk for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. The clinical syndrome associated with Rocky Mountain spotted fever has some hallmarks, which include fever, headache, rash, and a history of tick exposure or tick bite. Now, certainly not all of these are going to be present, and also the overlap of those components with the other diseases that we talked about and numerous other conditions is so high. So it's really hard to make this diagnosis. It gets easier the sicker your patient is, and certainly when they have a rash. But interestingly, 90% of people don't have a rash, and so some Clinicians will call this spotless Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And with that being 90%, it also makes it very difficult to establish this diagnosis. Of the 10% who have a rash, that rash in persons of color can be difficult to identify and difficult to characterize, and it changes over time. Initially, it's going to start at the wrists and ankles, and then it's going to spread to the trunk, and then lastly, extend to the palms and soles. And that starts to make this rash very specific or very concerning for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. 
Interestingly, although the rash is very prominent, easy to see, it's not pruritic. It's usually a blanching erythematous rash with macules and eventually progressing to petechiae. But patients may present only with the petechia or may only notice it at that stage if they notice it at all. Other conditions or situations or symptoms that might show up with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, just like with Lyme's, there can be CNS uh, symptoms such as encephalitis, seizures, confusion, but there can be edema, pulmonary edema, arrhythmias, bleeding, and so much more. These patients can be very sick at times. The incubation period from exposure, if you know the exposure to when symptoms begin, it can be anywhere from two days to two weeks. So again, quite wide. And the labs that you might see with these patients, putting aside the specific testing for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, you might see an elevated white count, low platelets, reduced fibrinogen, elevated fibrin split products, but rarely DIC, I should say. This, that's not a common finding. Hyponatremia, elevated aminotransferases, elevated bilirubin, elevated BUN or uremia, abnormal coagulation studies, renal failure, acute tubular necrosis can all be seen with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. If you did get CSF for, because the patient had neurologic symptoms, usually the white cell count is under 100 cells per microliter, and protein levels are between 100 and 200 milligrams per deciliter, and interestingly, have a normal glucose. So it can be difficult to feel confident about what's going on in these very sick patients because the testing will show a lot of abnormalities that are have individually wide differentials. The CSF may not be purely diagnostic. In addition, some of the symptoms can be so severe, such as abdominal pain, that patients are confused as having appendicitis or cholecystitis, especially with those elevated aminotransferases. It can be very difficult. Your imaging studies really have to be tailored to the situation in front of you. Severe abdominal pain may warrant abdominal imaging. Neurologic symptoms may get neuroimaging. Pulmonary edema, as evidenced by crackles on your exam, might warrant chest imaging. So it's not really standard for the diagnosis of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, but it can be essential to evaluating the other differentials on your list. How is this sounding to your experience? Is it sounding consistent with the way you approach this as well? Absolutely. You know, I think when we start getting into the specific diagnostic tests for this disease, just like with Lyme's, you're going to initiate treatment based on a high clinical suspicion. If the syndrome fits in an endemic area with exposure or some other features that make you very suspicious, you want to initiate treatment, even if you haven't established the diagnosis concretely. You're going to send off testing, and very much like Lyme disease, we're talking about getting immunologic testing, PCR testing. Those are going to be some of the mainstays for this. A lot of indirect immunofluorescence testing is available for free through local health departments, at least in the United States, and I suspect other countries have it similarly. And the sensitivity of those tests can approach 95%, though their timeliness is going to be weak, and so it's not going to be something you want to hinge your clinical treatment upon. After about a week of illness, IgM and IgG antibodies start to appear, but the best time to collect those serum testing for this is going to be two to three weeks after the onset of symptoms, and you're going to consider it diagnostic for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever if there's a fourfold increase in the IgG titer. 
One of the quickest things to make the diagnosis, though, is going to be doing a skin biopsy if they have a rash and looking at the sample under the microscope. The sensitivity for detecting rickettsia rickettsii on skin biopsy approximates 70%, but the specificity is really essentially 100%. The accuracy of that, though, goes down after about 40 hour, 48 hours of treatment. So if I'm beginning treatment for a concern for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever in somebody who has a rash, I'm going to mobilize dermatology or someone to do a skin biopsy as soon as I possibly can, potentially even in the emergency department. And I think we all have to be cognizant that you and I work in a very well-resourced center. If you happen to be taking care of a patient that you're highly suspicious of this disease in a center that's not as well-resourced, you may consider transferring them uh, or at least having a discussion if you feel like you're going to have to initiate treatment, they're very sick, they need advanced care, and the diagnosis uh, would hinge on a skin biopsy. At least that's how I would approach it, I think. What do you think? I think that's very reasonable. In terms of treatment, Again, as soon as you're suspecting this disease, you're going to really want to consider initiating treatment. In 1995, Kirkland et al. published an article titled Therapeutic Delay and Mortality in Cases of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. This was in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease. It was a retrospective cohort study, and so that comes with its own limitations, of course. But they compared the time from symptom onset to the time treatment was initiated and looked at outcomes. And what they found was that treatment initiated before five days of symptoms was associated with a 6.5% mortality, which is already high, but compare that to treatment initiated after the fifth day was associated with a mortality of 23%, which I think is staggering. And it just highlights the need to initiate treatment early when you have a strong suspicion for this disease. Now, what treatment are we talking about Certainly, again, doxycycline, oral or IV, is going to be the main treatment. If there are significant contraindications to it, though, chloramphenicol is the only other agent that has some data that I'm aware of for its efficacy in this syndrome. As for whether the patient stays in the hospital or not, if the patient has a syndrome acuity that is very high, obviously they should stay. Um, If they do not have a very high acuity syndrome of symptoms, and you have good access to outpatient follow-up, then you might send them home with oral doxycycline. Anything else you would add about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? Hey everyone, jumping in again. We've already heard about the way Lyme's disease is intertwined with the history of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever with Dr. Bergdorfer, but the history of the U.S. Public Health Service's mission at Canyon Creek Schoolhouse Lab started much earlier. The disease, often referred to as the black measles, became especially prevalent in the 1890s in the Bitterroot Valley of southwestern Montana and nearby Idaho. Dr. Howard T. Ricketts, a pathologist, identified the bacterium that later bore his name and honor in 1907. Unfortunately, shortly after in 1910, after completing his work on Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, he went on to study and successfully characterize the organism causing typhus. He died shortly after of typhus the same year. The team studying Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever opened the schoolhouse lab in 1921 to better understand the life cycle of the involved ticks and the underlying rickettsia. The team had to work to collect ticks to try and figure out how they got infected and transmitted the bacteria. After years of work, Dr. Roscoe Spencer, 
Ralph Parker, and others worked to develop a vaccine for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. They took a pan full of engorged and infected ticks, ground them up, and used a disinfectant called phenol, which is also carbolic acid. After successfully trying the vaccine on guinea pigs, they decided they needed a human test subject in 1924. Dr. Spencer wrote, the feasibility of human vaccination naturally arises from their guinea pig experiments. He indicated in his paper that he had taken the liberty of trying the vaccine on a human to guarantee safety. That human was himself. After further testing, the residents of Bitterroot Valley, struggling with the mortality associated with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, underwent vaccination. This was very successful, but later made redundant when antibiotics were found to cure the disease in the 1940s. As you can imagine, this was incredibly dangerous work. Researchers died of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever that they contracted at their laboratory. In some ways, I think this part of the history of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever really resonated with me while I was studying with it. I greatly admire the dedication and focus on service of these researchers who took great personal risks in service of their patients. In some ways, it reminded me of the early days of COVID that many of us have lived through. There was a great uncertainty about our own survival. I remember my wife, an emergency department nurse at the time, and I over dinner realizing that we had to have our wills made up because we weren't sure what the pandemic had in store for us. I think many emergency physicians had to come to grips with their mortality in a very similar way early on in the pandemic. It was very clear in reading about Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever that these are our people, the people who show up when there's great need. Back to the interview. In the landscape of tick illnesses, where should we go next? I think we've covered the two largest players in this yeah. space. We've been talking about rickettsia, and so I think we continue to move on some obligate intracellular bacteria. I'll, I'll talk about ehrlichiosis. I'm going to do ehrlichiosis in two minutes. So ehrlichiosis, again, obligate intracellular bacteria that's uh, most common in the southeastern and south central United States. It can be transmitted by a couple of different ticks. So you can't, assuming you're a tick expert, you wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to narrow it down if, if that were you. It has a five to 14 day incubation period, and it presents similarly to some other tick-borne illnesses with fever, chills, headache, malaise, in some cases, rash and altered mental status. Um, I bring it up because actually it's on the same panel here at Mayo as Lyme's disease. And so it presents similarly, we test similarly. If you do a general laboratory evaluation for your patient with fever and generalized weakness, you might see thrombocytopenia, a leukopenia, a mild anemia, and similarly to Rocky Mountain spotted fever, a mild uh, transaminitis. One thing you could get is a peripheral smear, and there is a finding called a morlet, uh, which I wouldn't be able to find, but in about 20% of patients, it's this clumping of cells that your laboratory team might be looking for. Really though, we're talking about getting a PCR and looking for DNA detection. That would be the most sensitive in the first week prior to uh, prior to giving your tetracycline antibiotic or um, an IgG antibody titer test with an immunofluorescence. And that's going to happen initially in that first week uh, and then two to four weeks later. And so this is, again, something that you're kind of testing for, but probably empirically treating at the same time. The treatment, any ideas on what that might be, Vink? 
what what could oh. it possibly be? Doxy, Doxy Van- for Vancomycin- the win. Oh, <laughs> I love it. That's ehrlichiosis in two minutes or less. All right, the challenge has been thrown down. Can I do anaplasmosis in two minutes or less? It's essentially the same in terms of the symptoms you might see. Um, it, the treatment and testing is going to be essentially identical to ehrlichiosis. In terms of the distribution, it's slightly different. Anaplasmosis is generally seen within the United States in the Northeast and Midwestern states like Minnesota and Wisconsin, but it can be seen throughout Europe as well, particularly in Slovenia and Sweden and certainly other parts too. I think depending on what you read, sometimes the incubation period for anaplasmosis is closer to the one-week mark, whereas ehrlichiosis is maybe a little bit less than that. Um, There are certain neurologic findings that are rare but can be seen with anaplasmosis as well, like seizures and coma. I think the same thing probably with ehrlichiosis. And then the myocarditis and arrhythmia and pericardial effusions and even tamponade has been seen with anaplasmosis. If you did get CSF with human granulocytic anaplasmosis, such as with neurosymptoms, the CSF is essentially normal, which is, again, going to leave you in a diagnostic quandary. And then the treatment, like you mentioned, is going to be doxycycline. If you can't give doxycycline for some reason, rifampin is an alternative agent, and chloramphenicol also has been shown to have efficacy but more complications. How was that? You beat me. Was it? Was it yes. less? The, your, uh, your tick tick-borne flow is definitely superior to mine. In full disclosure, I just piggybacked off of most (laughs) of what you said, so I had the advantage there. All right, what's next? How about... I don't know. I want to hear more about babesiosis. Babesiosis, absolutely. Babesiosis is caused by a protozoan of the genus Babesia. There's several species uh, that have been implicated in babesiosis, but it really varies by the region. And this disease is seen in the Northeast and upper Midwest of the U.S., as well as in Europe, Australia, Central America, and even parts of China. I am liking these genuses with Rickettsia, Rickettsia, Rickettsia. I get the fun Babesiosi, ones, I think. Babesiosis, like... Uh, well, Borrelia is kind Bor- of fun, I guess, yeah, too. Yeah, you're right. Borrelia burgdorferi. Yes. Love it. Love you are so things. much better at it than I am. I, I try and avoid saying them as much <laughs> as I can. The syndrome of babesiosis really can vary from asymptomatic, which we're not going to see, all the way up to fatal, um, which we again hope to never see. And it's going to depend on their exposure to the infectious agent, to the protozoan, but also human host immunologic status. The disease incubation, wait for this, up to four weeks. So our history really has to go back quite a ways to be able to identify risks for this. And the symptoms I think commonly you're going to see sweats, chills, and body aches, so highly non-diagnostic symptoms. And then the next most common set of symptoms, decreased appetite, headaches, nausea, and dry cough. Again, very nonspecific symptoms, easy to overlook this. But when you start getting further into folks who are immunocompromised or elderly or vulnerable in some way, they can start to have more prominent significant vomiting and diarrhea, pulmonary edema, splenic infarcts or even splenic rupture. Significant anemia, um, hemolytic anemias can happen, and they really tend to correlate with the degree of parasitemia that the patient has. And severe, severe cases can have CHF, renal failure, DIC, and ARDS. 
It's important with all of these. I think we haven't talked about this, but co-infections between one tick-borne infection and others is pretty common, especially with anaplasmosis and Lyme disease and Ehrlichia. Specific testing for Babesia would include the blood smear and PCR and serology, again, that same kind of triad of testing. In general, it's thought that if you suspect the diagnosis and you have access to blood smear microscopy, you should start with that. If not, then you should use PCR. If you get a smear and it's negative, it doesn't really rule out the disease. So if the symptoms are strongly suggestive of the disease, you might test again with another smear, potentially even two or three times before advancing to PCR. And then serologic IgG testing, looking for again that fourfold increase can happen, but that's gonna confirm retrospectively the diagnosis and it's not going to be helpful prospectively. If your patient has a syndrome consistent with babesiosis, putting together the history, their physical, and testing, and they have an exposure any time in the last six months, basically then you're going to start treatment. And in this case, do you know what the treatments are? No idea. It's not doxycycline. Uh Uh-oh. We're moving beyond. We're going to azithromycin and atovaquone. That's the first-line preferred regimen. Alternatively, you can use clindamycin and quinine. And basically, whether you think the patient has a severe syndrome or a mild to moderate syndrome is going to determine whether you use oral or IV regimen and whether the patient stays in the hospital. Should we change gears and talk about a few viruses? Let's do it. So overall, I think what something that's important to talk about is that we have protozoa, we have bacteria, but ticks as the bearers of all bad things can also transmit viruses. Something that's in general a little bit interesting is that with some of these viruses, all of the truths that we've previously stated about the tick being attached for 24 hours, 72 hours until, you know, prophylaxis, that all kind of goes out the window. And so in, in some cases, within 15 minutes of being attached, a virus can be transmitted. There's three major viruses that we're going to talk about and really just focus on one. There's Colorado tick fever. Heartland virus and the Powassan virus disease. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. So the key thing about uh, Heartland virus disease is it's very rare. And I would I would venture to say that uh, we won't spend a lot of time on it because it's likely to be missed. It's more of a hospital diagnosis. There have been, as of 2017, 50 cases, but presents with all the same stuff. And, uh, and I think that's going to be a little bit more of an inpatient disease. But the one I, I want to spend a little bit more time on is uh, Powassan virus disease caused by the Powassan virus. So um, this has an incubation period of one to four weeks, and it's actually uh, most common right where we are in Minnesota in the Great Lakes region. It also will present with fever, headaches, vomiting, but really is the principal virus that leads to a, a menin- meningoencephalitis. And so you start to see seizures, aphasia, paresis, movement disorders, and cranial nerve palsies. And overall, this is going to be a, a serologic or, or CSF-based diagnosis. So the CSF will have lymphocytic pleocytosis, elevated uh, or normal 
protein and normal glucose. And ultimately, you're going to, uh, in your undifferentiated patient with altered mental status and new meningoencephalitis, uh, ultimately start to consider this and get a virus-specific IgM antibody from the serum or CSF. And this is really when you're starting to consider things like West Nile, you know, St. Louis encephalitis, a couple of these rarer diagnoses. Um, and additionally, you could consider a RT-PCR to look for viral RNA in the CSF specimens. But another thing to add to your differential in your rare meningoencephalitis patients. Speaking of rare things and about ticks, I once saw a case of tick paralysis. Have you ever seen that before? I've never seen that. What, how did it present? What did you see? So I was a resident in the neurologic ICU and... We had an intubated patient that was transferred to us with an ascending paralysis. And we have some of the most amazing educators in the neuro ICU. And uh, I remember Dr. Rabenstein, uh, who I hope we can have on our show one day, but he went through a lot of different thoughts and considerations for potential causes, took detailed history from the patient's family who was there and I think he had gotten some report from the transferring facility as well, and eventually had concluded that he was extremely suspicious there was a tick. And he challenged our team to find it, and I can't remember which trainee in our group found a tick, removed it, and then when I came back the next day, the patient had been extubated and was doing so much better. It was staggering to watch. This this is... Uh I feel like an episode of House. Like yes, that's incredible. Exactly. Incredible. It, it felt like that, and um, it really was about his diagnostic skills. I think it helps that he knows how to differentiate it from other conditions. But for those who aren't as familiar or haven't heard of tick paralysis, basically, tick paralysis comes from a whole host of different ticks, and it relates to a neurotoxin that is in their saliva. Um, in the United States, some of the most commonly associated uh, ticks for this are the Dermacentor andersoni and Dermacentor variabilis. Um, these are the wood tick and the American dog tick, but there are truly so many different ticks that can do this. And as we've established, it's not worth most people's time trying to identify the tick because we're really bad at it. The symptoms begin like four to seven days after the tick begins feeding, and the neurotoxin slows the motor nerve conduction velocity, lowers the height of the nerve action potential, and it can impair propagation of signal along the afferent nerves. And clinically, what you see is that a patient who's describing body aches, headache, um, those are fairly common, I'm sorry, fairly uncommon with this, but are not impossible. Um, and in this kind of situation of vague syndrome, unlike the other conditions, I should say, this one does not usually have fever. Um, patients start to describe paresthesias, fatigue, and weakness. Sensation is usually spared, and as the disease progresses, there are gait changes and then eventually ascending paralysis. It's important to note that deep tendon reflexes are absent in this situation, and if left unchecked, death can happen from respiratory muscle paralysis. Interestingly, the case I saw was, if I remember correctly, symmetric ascending paralysis, but there are reports of unilateral 
ascending paralysis that can happen. And I can completely imagine thinking of that patient as having a stroke or some other condition, though the time progression would be different. Or even aortic dissection might be something that would come to my mind. If you did see the patient before they have full-on paralysis, there are reports of abnormal coordination, even in the upper limbs. And so consideration of cerebellar disease um, starts to come into people's mind too. And thinking about different paralysis syndromes, I mean, thinking about Guillain-Barre syndrome, botulism, myasthenia gravis, polio, hypokalemic periodic paralysis, psychogenic disease, and one of my favorite conditions, catatonia, are all things that you should have on your differential among many others. But some of the distinguishing features are that in this case, if you did get CSF, it will be essentially normal. Imaging will be normal. Unlike botulism, this is ascending paralysis. Botulism is a descending paralysis. Tick paralysis usually progresses over, over hours to days, whereas the others are usually days to weeks, so a bit faster with this. And then sensation is spared with tick paralysis, which is different than Guillain-Barre syndrome and spinal cord lesions and other spinal syndromes. And it really comes down to finding the tick. If you can, when you remove it, the reports are that things improve over hours to days. And like I said, I, I went home one day with an intubated patient, came back, and they were awake and moving. It was impressive. That's a really incredible story. The other thing that I think people may not talk about much or be aware of is alpha-gal sensitization. Have you heard of this? I've read a little bit about it, but tell me more. Well, apparently there are reports throughout the world, U.S., Germany, Japan, Australia, Sweden, so many places, but there are reports that after a lot of tick exposures, people can suddenly start developing atopic reactions to red meat. Hmm. Can you just imagine what that would be like if you're a like in Texas, and, <laughs> and you go out, you're active, you're exposed to a bunch of ticks, and then all of a sudden you can't have steak or hamburger. Well, what I under understand is that there's this alpha-gal, G-A-L, protein um, that is found in the GI or salivary tracts of different ticks. And based on that exposure, it can create a sensitization within the host to this component, this alpha-gal component. And then that same protein or component is found in certain mammalian red meats. And then this already sensitized host ingests the meat and then has an atopic syndrome related to it. It'd be good for the cholesterol, but probably wouldn't be too, too <laughs> pleasant. That's true. I, I didn't think about the bright side, but <laughs> that's why I'm so great, grateful to be your partner. So Alex, we talked about a lot of things. It's been a, an amazing journey through tick-related illnesses, but I think we need to summarize at least the two big conditions, Lyme and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Absolutely. Lyme's disease, the key thing to remember, this is the most common tick-borne illness in the United States. It's a spiroketal infection. Borrelia burgdorferi comes from the Ixodes tick. The main things to remember are considering those questions about if you should prophylax someone, and prophylaxis is a one-time dose of doxycycline, essentially within 72 hours of the tick bite. It's a really interesting disease because it can cause some really atypical things in early disseminated disease, like a new heart block. 
I think that's actually one of the ways we sometimes find it in our younger adults. In, in our ED, every year or so, there's a, a new complete heart block that, that we find this. But additionally, unique Bell's palsy and sometimes uh, an encephalitis type picture. Be vigilant in your social histories to consider tick-borne illness. Absolutely. And with Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, again, that vigilance in terms of thinking about it on your differential for patients with abdominal pain, altered mental status or neurologic symptoms, unexplained fever, and a whole host of other presentations. The treatment is, again, going to be doxycycline, and you want to start treatment whenever you have a high index of suspicion without waiting for confirmatory testing. We've talked about the testing, which is complicated, of course, but one of the most accurate and potentially quickest ways to make the diagnosis is skin biopsy, which if you're starting treatment for this and you have a strong suspicion, consider the fact that the skin biopsy results are going to degrade in accuracy over the 48-hour time period. And so the patient, based on acuity of illness, may require transfer, uh, but uh, you might want to try and coordinate that before too long. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever carries a pretty high mortality rate, 23% if the treatment is initiated after five days, and we can make a big difference by early consideration and initiation of something simple such as doxycycline and drop that mortality down to about 6.5%. So it's something that I think we need to talk a lot about, be very vigilant for, and hopefully not let our patients down for that. Any other thoughts you have before we end this month's episode? No, I'm just uh, look at already looking forward to next month. I think we'll have a very exciting episode for you. Absolutely. And I'm not entirely sure which Grand Rounds we're going to release yet, but uh, we have so many great talks, and it'll be nice to be able to share something with you all in the middle of the month. So, everyone, thank you so much for your time and attention. We really appreciate you joining us. Don't forget to like, comment, and follow the show on whatever platform you're using. And as we mentioned, come back later this month and again in September for more great content from Always On EM. The Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.